Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Today, uh, our guest is Bryant Foster, who is VP of Human Factors at Research Collective. Bryant, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Cool. So, um, Bryant, uh, let's see, I, I just mentioned VP of Human Factors. He works at uh, a company called Research Collective. And um, he's held several positions in the past, um, uh, from from Google to a uh, faculty member at ASU, and now to his current position here at, at Research Collective. Um, Bryant, so uh, uh, I'm an engineer, and I've worked with a lot of engineers uh, over you know the past 15, 20 years, and I have actually never worked with uh, a human factors designer or scientist. And I, I think that that's probably the case for a lot of engineers out there. Can you just maybe spend a couple of minutes going over w- what is the field of human factors? Um, what do you guys do? And, and uh, we'll just start start there. All right. Um, so let's see. I mean, human factors, a lot of times there, there is positions um, called human factors engineers or usability engineers. Um, it's a little bit of a misnomer, I think, though, uh, you know, because it's, we definitely don't follow a lot of times the typical engineering um, schooling and background. Um, so most people that get into human factors, um, well, there's you can come in kind of from a lot of ways, but there's a, a few that are kind of the main um, paths into human factors. Um, one is psychology. So people uh, studying psychology, they like learning about people and how we learn and um, how we make decisions and, um, you know, our abilities and limitations, they like learning about that stuff. And then they, when it comes time to kind of figuring out what kind of career there could be in this, uh, you know, counseling is always the one that comes to, to mind first. Um, and so if you're, if you don't want to do that, you find out there's a lot of different things you can do with psychology. And one of them is applying these things we know about people to the design um, of products. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of how I did this. Um, I did a bachelor's degree in Spanish, uh, didn't really want to teach Spanish or didn't know what I was going to do with that, but ended up finding, um, about finding out about human factors, went through a psychology program at Arizona state, um, that specialized in this. And and that's kind of how I got into it. Um, other people will come in through design. So if they're interested in design, uh, maybe they're real talented in that. Um, and, and then they kind of get, uh, real excited about, okay, how do I make my designs really user friendly or usable? Um, so they, they kind of will focus then on human factors or or usability. Um, and then the other is engineering. Um, a lot of times, especially in medical devices, biomedical engineers will, um, you know, kind of pick up on this. And sometimes even once they're in their career, kind of switch over and start focusing on human factors or sometimes while they're in school, um, but uh, those, you know, and, and it's nice because in the field, we now have backgrounds from uh, people with different skill sets. And so, you know, you've got some engineering knowledge, some um, real heavy, you know, psychology design, and all of us at the end of the day, our, our main, the thing that gets us most excited is uh, applying what we know from one of these fields to people um, and, and how, how people are going to end up interacting with the things that are being made. Cool. So, uh, 
when I used to think of human factors, I, I naively probably just thought ergonomics, you know, does mm-hmm. this thing fit well in someone's hand, basically. Uh, what you're saying is that human factors is a lot more than just ergonomics. There's there's human psychology and uh, involved. Is, is that is that accurate? It is, yeah. So ergonomics is another uh, kind of area, and it depends a lot of times where you are in the world. Um, sometimes they're, you know, in Europe they might use ergonomics more than than in the U.S. Um, ergonomics tends to be kind of associated now more with physical design and a lot of times like office design chairs and equipment. Um, but it's another area that's just interested in designing for the fit, proper fit with the people that are going to be using the, the products. Okay, cool. Um, I read on this, on your LinkedIn page, something that, that I wanted to read here and maybe get some feedback from me because it sounded like a really cool project. So what it says is, uh, this is one of the the um, roles that you had in the past. Collected emplacement recognition of improvised explosive device knowledge from U.S. Army unmanned aerial vehicle sensor operators to design a realistic scenario-based training simulation. There are so many really cool words in there. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about, about that experience and, and what you did there? Yeah, um, that, that's interesting. I hadn't uh, read that in a long time. Um, pro- probably trying to sound cooler than I uh, than I actually was um, <laughs> well, <it worked>. or <laughs> am. <laughs> so the uh, it was actually a really cool project. Right when I started grad school, um, I I was able to join up with a team that was working with um, the army um, based in Fort Huachuca in Arizona, uh, doing um, working with a team that uh, flew drones, um, the unmanned aircraft. And so our focus was, you know, a lot of times it's on the technology and how to make the drones, you know, faster, quieter, um, all these sorts of things. And there's a lot of work that goes into the pilots that are actually flying these. Um, And we were looking at, you know, what are the cues that the pilots are looking for when they're scanning, uh, you know, an area? Um, so we uh, interviewed a lot of these pilots uh, down at Fort Huachuca and found some really interesting things about kind of the um, these little cues they would pick up on that, you know, you or I, an, an untrained eye would not even notice. But things with, you know, a car being positioned a little bit differently one day to the next um, or, you know, a door that's open uh, that, that usually isn't or something just crazy little things and they would pick up on these things and and be able to tell if these were threats. So what we did was um, made uh, a simulation that they could kind of fly over simulated. Um, And we tracked, we used eye tracking to look at where they looked in that, in their field to help us kind of augment what we learned from them in our interviews um, to see, okay, are there Gaze patterns, you know, when they're tracking and looking in these areas, kind of matching up with what they're saying, the things they're they're attending to, um, and so we were able to create heat maps with these eye tracking uh, charts um, and and see really some interesting things when you look at you know what a trained pilot looks at compared to you know, one of the students that we had run through it. Um, very different patterns and uh, and kind of the thing, yeah, the things they were attending to. 
That is very cool. And and it brings up another question. Um, you mentioned like data, you know, eye tracking software and gathering that kind of data. How how much of a role does data play in humus factors as as opposed to um, I'm not even sure what what to call it, just kind of uh, subjective subjective observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a great question, and you know we try to use it more and more, especially as the technology improves. Um, but you know if you if you look at the way you can learn about how someone interacts with something or their experience with it. You can interview them, uh, and that's pretty popular in, um, you know, like market research and things. You focus groups, uh, you know, one-on-one discussions, interviews, um, and you know they can tell you a lot about what they like, what they don't, you know, what's good and what's bad. Um, but if you rely only on that, <clears throat> you miss out on some of the things that you can get by watching them use product, um, because. It might be that, oh, they've developed, you know, they're experienced and now they've developed some workaround that to them now is very easy, but you would you would not want to necessarily put that in the hands of someone who isn't experienced. And so maybe there's some things you can learn about how to improve that for the naive user. Um, so then we would add in, you know, observation and performance uh, to that. Um, another area would be the eye tracking. So, or, or any type of biometric, um, things like heart rate variability, um, the, uh, galvanic skin response. So, you know, it's the, the technology used in lie detectors. We sweat a little bit in our fingertips and our toes and kind of everywhere when, uh, when we're stressed or our, you know, our workload is going up or we're using, you know, brain power. So if you use those things, Along with you know your observations and your um, interviews, you can see okay you know are their uh, their biometric data matching up with kind of what we're hearing and sometimes they don't and when those times happen um, it kind of requires further analysis a little bit deeper dive into what what's really at play here maybe it's nothing important but um, at least you know what they're saying isn't always matching up with what's going on physiologically. And what kind of tools do you use to measure those things? I mean, we talked about eye tracking software. You mentioned that, you know, small amount of perspiration on fingertips, things like that. What other kinds of tools are are used to measure that data? So for eye tracking, um, there's uh, two main methods. Uh, one would be what's called a remote eye tracker. And this would sit uh, at the base of a maybe a graphic interface, a computer screen, something like that. Um, it has cameras that you know, point back at the eyes and it's measuring um, or, or picking up on um, you know, where the eyes are looking on that display. It requires calibration to kind of tell it, okay, how big of a display is it, uh, is it tracking? Um, so that's one. Uh, now, most often we will use glasses that do the same thing. They have cameras that point back at the eyes um, and also out to the um, to the field of view. So we've done uh, we've used glasses uh, on for studies related to like motorcycle riding um, and seeing you know where do people look as they ride a motorcycle. Um, and it, that's another one of those things where you see you know expert riders looking at different things and having different gaze patterns than novice riders. Um, Others would be, you know, there's always EEG, uh, which, you know, is the the head um, goes on the head and requires, uh, you know, really short hair. 
um, to be very effective. Uh, and so we don't use that very often, but that's another good way to see, um, you know, kind of workload. Um, heart rate variability might be, we have a watch that we use that uh, tracks heart rate. And so it looks for, you know, your, your dips and peaks and valleys in your heart rate um, at certain times when we're preventing stimuli, um, as well as the galvanic skin response, which uh, a lot of times is something you wear on your finger um, and it will track the, the, um, the response, the, the body's response to workload um, or stress uh, that way. Those are the main tools that, that we've used. That's, that's fascinating. Um, I had no idea that there were so many tools you could use for this kind of human factors data acquisition. It sounds, I mean, it, you could almost use this stuff for some kind of a interrogation. In fact, I, I bet that, uh, you know, law enforcement professionals use some of this stuff as well. Yeah. And that, that's really what the lie detector test is. Um, yeah, it's, it's, tell, it's showing, you know, are you having some sort of physiological reaction uh, that that's different than your baseline? And that's what they're detecting as a lie in those cases. And the glasses, those sound really cool. They, they look back at your eyes and track your eye movements. Are, are they very big or do they just look kind of like normal glasses? They, um, there's a few different types. Uh, the one we use is made by a company called Toby, um, T-O-B-I-I. And they are, they're probably one of the biggest players out there uh, in, in eye tracking, especially. Um, but yeah, they're, they kind of have a thicker rim and, and the glass, the, um, the lens, or sorry, the cameras uh, are usually like on the bottom and pointing back at the eye and there's one up in the center. But cameras are so small now. The, these used to be really obtrusive, but now they're they're pretty awesome and people wear them. They don't really seem too bothered by them. You can put a lens in them or they can even be lens, you know, without a lens. Um, uh, if you're, if you're just, uh, you know, in a lab or something like that. How cool. Um, I was looking on your website and I saw the terms, uh, human factors, scientists and user experience designers. Can you talk a little bit about what, what's the difference between those two roles? Love this question. Um, so in theory, there should be very little difference between them. Um, there, there seems to be more of a gap uh, as time goes on, as uh, some people focus more on kind of the touchy-feely parts of design. <clears throat> and a lot of times um, they're in roles uh, at more te technology companies, um, design companies as a user experience engineer and and a lot of times i'll refer to them doing things you know on graphic user interfaces um, more so than hardware products and then human factors is uh, really common in aviation um, medical devices and other areas where people would be working a lot on hardware um, or systems and uh, and those would be you know more human factors engineers a lot of times they have the same training it might just be where they ended up kind of the path they took in their career um, and the the way their particular field uh, classifies their work okay thanks for sharing that um how does a company know that that uh they need human factors research is there are there some triggers like if, if i'm an engineer and i'm working on the design of a new product is there some kind of trigger 
that I can be aware of to think to myself, oh, hey, this is probably a point at which I should pull in a human factors scientist or a user experience designer. It's, yeah, it's a, um, is there a point at which, it, you know, I would say it, the, the tough part about it is what, what happens a lot of times um, in the work that we do, it, it seems like common sense. And a lot of times it is. I mean, it's, it's like, okay, if you're designing something for, um, you know, an elderly user, we'll make sure that you're using, um, you know, good contrast on your display. Um, and your font, your, your typeface is, is large enough to be seen. Um, and, you know, okay, super easy common sense. But what happens a lot of times is people forget to even ask that first question of, okay, who are we designing for here? Um, and sometimes that, you know, just going through that process of, so our typical, you know, engagement would be coming in saying, okay, who are your users? Where are they using the product? Um, what are the kind of circumstances that they're using the product in? And just asking those questions, we find so often people, you know, you know within an organization, maybe there's a, a couple people that are involved in this and they're looking at each other and they're like, well, it, it's these people. And, and then they're like, oh, but there's those people or, you know, oh, but not those people. And so it just it just kind of helps everyone understand or start to think about, OK, who is using this? Where are they using it? Um, so. You know, if I think it, it's nice early on, of course. Um, I know people are the budgets are always a question, and so you, you don't want to, um, you know, bring in someone if you, if you don't have to. But uh, I think it is helpful, just just like you would, you know, if you were designing something that needed electrical engineering. Um, you know, a mechanical engineer could probably figure it out. Um, but if you just were like, oh, I just know an electric electrical engineer does this in in their sleep. Um, let's just, you know, let that person come in and, and handle this or at least consult with us and tell us, do we need to, is it worth having an electrical engineer here or should we just do this part um, and, and then bring them in later at a different point? Yeah, because another um, important factor is time is money, right? Sure, sure, maybe, maybe a mechanical engineer could fumble around and figure out the human factors things, but how long is it going to take him or her? Maybe it takes them two months to figure out what what uh, your team could figure out in a matter of days or a week or something. I think so. Yeah. And and we, we see that. And I, the other area uh, I just I have to say is the uh, if for medical devices, I know you're involved in medical devices, um, you know, the FDA has really started to push this more and more. And um, so, you know, there's we don't want people to be surprised when they go to the FDA with a new product. Um, and now the, the FDA is saying, okay, do you have human factors testing or usability testing as part of your submission? Um, and, uh, and so that, that ends up being a fairly decent marketing arm for us as well. Are you seeing that as more and more a common part of the 510k submission for FDA approval? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it more, more a part of it. Um, and the agency, you know, is definitely not consistent for uh, it. And, but like a lot of times it's all related to risk. And so if you have risks, you know, potentially harmful things that could happen if people misuse your product, um, then they're going to want to see that you've conducted some sort of usability testing um, to demonstrate that people can use your product without incurring these harmful use errors. 
There are so many more questions I think that that uh, people might have about this. We obviously don't have an unlimited amount of time here today. So if people want to get in touch with you and learn a little bit more about how you might help them with their design and human factors, what's what's uh, the best way for people to get in touch with you and, and uh, Research Collective? So yeah, the, um, our website is research hyphen collective.com uh research dash collective um if you go there uh you'll see a little bit about us Uh, my email address is bryant b-r-y-a-n-t at research dash collective.com perfect great well brian thank you so much for being on the show and and sharing some human factors wisdom with us super interesting stuff um uh, and i guess that's it for me it, it, unless there's anything else that you want to say before we end the call uh, no nothing else for me appreciate uh, you having me on um best of luck in this and uh glad to uh glad to be a participant cool all right well thanks so much brian thanks aaron i'm aaron monker founder of pipeline design and engineering If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.